All right, understanding your religion, the seven major doctrines that define the Christian faith. We're on lesson number eight, the title of this lesson, The Complete History of Mankind, imagine, <laughs> in 30 minutes. So we've reviewed the first and second great biblical doctrines, the first of which was the inspiration of the Bible. The second great Christian doctrine was or is the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now the other Bible doctrines are all based on these two. So today we're going to start to study the next three. So we're going, we're going slow at the beginning, but now we're going to kind of pick up the pace. The next three Bible doctrines form a set. Okay? They're separate doctrines, but they form a set. The first one is the doctrine of original sin. The second is the doctrine of the fall of man. The third is the doctrine of the restoration or reconciliation of man to God. So these three doctrines could be summarized as follows. In the beginning, God created the universe and man to be good. Man disobeyed God and consequently was separated from God and made subject to suffering and death along with all creation. Since then, God has acted in human history in a dynamic way in order to reconcile man to himself through Jesus Christ. There you have the three doctrines, that set of three compressed into one, uh, one or two paragraphs. Okay, so the first of, so, so there's the summary, so let's drill down, okay, and take the first of these. The first of this set of three is the doctrine of original goodness, and that doctrine is found in Genesis 1 and 2. So we read in Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So man is created in the likeness of God. And of course this explains man's potential and ability for doing what is good, doing what is creative for example. Why? Why is he that way? Well he's made in the image of God. And it also explains why even the most evil of people have some good. You know, Hitler, for example, uh, was a painter. I've seen some of his paintings. You know, I mean, they're, they're not hanging in museums because of his great expertise, but he had a gift for painting. And even the worst of terrorists, right? love their families, love their children. You know, there's always some good in the most evil of people. And you wonder, why is that? Well, we're, in, we're created in the image of God. So man's basic character begins as good. Let's keep reading. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man is God's partner in the management of creation and he's good at it. So man's purpose and man's work, these things also are good from the beginning. All right, we keep reading. This time we skip over to chapter two. 
of Genesis, it says, the Lord commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So here we see that man is given a moral code in order to define his limits. Okay? This moral code gives substance to his relationship with God. What kind of relationship does man have with God? Well, superior and inferior, that's the relationship he has with God. How does man know that? God imposes a certain framework around him. You can do all of this, you have all of creation, multiply, subdue, blah, 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 but, but here's the limit. Here's the lines you, you cannot cross. So we understand the one who sets the limits is usually the one who is above and the one who must obey the limits is below. So God establishes that relationship by setting a limit. Okay? So man has free will, yes, but he's not free to disobey God. This is the limit placed on his freedom. So the ethical code given to man awakens the conscious part of his being and provides the perspective as to the difference between himself and God. How do I know I'm not God? I've been given a command by God to obey. I have limits. So the awakening of his conscience, in other words, the giving of the commandment kind of jump starts his conscience. He understands what's right, what's wrong what he's able to do, what he's not able to do, what he's free to do, what he's forbidden to do. Okay? That's what provides the tension, if you wish, the, the perspective in his relationship with God. You know, we've heard of the saying, I think, therefore I am. Right? Well, the reason I think is because God gave me the ability to choose. That's why I think. Okay? God provides the tension in his relationship with us by giving us a moral code. All right, Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So a perfectly suitable partner was given in order to share in the joy of life and management of creation. So mankind's life and, enjoy, uh, and enjoyment, this is a good thing from the very beginning. So the biblical view of man is that he was designed as a holy, godly, eternal being and his task was to choose as a conscious act of his will to remain good, to remain holy and obedient to God. Without this ability he is like the animals, aware only of himself but not aware of God. What's the difference between you know, animals and man? Man's aware of God, animals are not. Animals may be aware of man, but they're not aware of God. Okay? So this then is the third major doctrine of the Bible. This is the doctrine of original goodness. All right? It's almost, you, know, you read that and say, well, that's, you know, we know that. Trust me, when the false doctrine comes in, this is one of the doctrines that becomes perverted. All right? So to summarize, Man was created to have a relationship with God. He was created with the ability to manage creation and produce a society. He was created with the capacity to choose good and to avoid evil. 
He didn't just know God's will, he had the ability to do God's will if he chose to do it. Something we don't have today. We know God's will, but we don't have the ability to do God's will, not perfectly anyways. Okay? All right, so that's the third major doctrine, original goodness. The fourth major doctrine of the Bible is man's fall from grace through sin. Okay? The original position of mankind at creation, he had an intimate relationship with God, he had a perfect social, natural, emotional, spiritual balance between God and man and the creation, everything was in harmony. This perfect balance was destroyed when man fell, how? Through disobedience to God. So let's keep reading. Chapter three, verse six. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So through the deception and seduction, woman and man are now tempted to disobey God and they do. They do exactly the thing that God had said not to do. They cross the line. God's command establishes what is right and wrong. Violating His will constitutes sin and always, here's the lesson, always has negative consequences. You cannot disobey God and avoid the negative consequences. So this in essence is the substance of the fourth great biblical doctrine. Man has been given the ability to choose and choosing to obey will result in maintaining his position and the harmony that he has between himself and God, himself and his partner, himself and the creation. Choosing to disobey will result in a fall and this fall is the subject of the fourth great Christian doctrine. What are the results of the fall? Let's keep reading. It says, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what are the results of the fall? Results of the fall, first of all, rebellion, disobedience, Shame, they were hiding. Anger, this woman you gave me, like it's God's fault. Loss of innocence and love. Notice in the dialogue, the defensive attitude. In addition to these, the unbalancing of the social, natural and emotional order that existed between God and man, between man and woman, and between man and creation, and all of this resulting in physical and spiritual death. And the Old Testament, you, know, you read through the Old Testament, you just see the outworking of this thing. Cain kills Abel, there's the flood, and there are wars, and you know, it just gets worse and worse, right? 
So the doctrine of the fall through sin is mirrored, as I said, throughout the entire Old Testament. Cain and Abel, the sinfulness leading to the flood, the cycle of commands, disobedience and destruction that follows the Jewish nation throughout history. All of this reflect the fall of man through sin. You don't have to have the history of every ancient people to know what happened after the fall. The Bible simply traces one of those nations, the Jewish nation, and one that had actually you know, direct contact with God with all those advantages. And still, what is their history? Nothing but rebellion and war and idolatry and sinfulness and disobedience and destruction, right? Kind of a microcosm of what else is happening in the rest of the world. So the doctrine of the fall through sin is mirrored throughout the entire Old Testament. Okay, now, there is misinterpretation of major doctrines. This is where the trouble begins, not for them, but for us. The fourth major doctrine has been misunderstood and improperly taught to the point that entire doctrinal systems have evolved around the incorrect application of its core ideas. You know, the fall of man, that doctrine, been misinterpreted and misapplied. One teaching that misrepresents the doctrine of the fall of man is the doctrine of, not original goodness, but the doctrine of original sin. Okay, let's look at that. Doctrine of original sin. This doctrine, this teaching, was originally for, formulated by Augustine. He was a fourth century Roman Catholic theologian. And much of his writing mixed Christian doctrine with Greek philosophical ideas. He kind of, kind of married these two you know, sources together. And basically he taught that Adam's fall produced two things. First of all, it produced a human nature which was unable by itself to choose good or to respond to God in faith. Incapable of doing that, so corrupted were human beings after the fall, he taught, now not the Bible, but he taught, that they were unable to respond to God. They were unable to respond to God in faith. This idea, this source idea, this seed idea, was later developed by Protestant thinkers, like Calvin, for example. And the way that it was developed, it, it gained another name. It was developed as an idea referred to as total depravity. And total depravity said that without the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit, a person was not even able to obey God. So beginning with, um, uh, with Augustine, who says that because of original sin, you know, the fall of man, humans become so corrupted they can't, you know, they can't respond to God. Calvin develops this even further and says it's total depravity. We're total, totally helpless to believe. We can't believe without direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. That was one idea that came out of that. Then the second idea that Augustine promoted was that original sinfulness and its condition of moral helplessness was passed on or imputed to every descendant of Adam. 
In other words, every child born afterwards was not only born guilty of Adam's sin, but helpless to do anything about it. Okay? Because according to the doctrine of original sin, men are born guilty and morally helpless, if you begin with that thought, then several practices grew out of this false thinking. The first of which was infant baptism and also baptism for the dead. So here's how the thinking goes. If they are born guilty, therefore they are condemned at birth and they need to be saved immediately at birth. If you can impute or pass on guilt, guess what? You can also impute and pass on faith. Makes sense, right? I mean, if that's what you're thinking. So if Adam's sin transfers to you, it seems reasonable that your parents' faith can also transfer to you in order to save you. A lot of people say, why do they baptize babies? This is why they baptize babies. This is the thinking behind it. One step further in the process, if you as a baby can be saved without being conscious of it, you can also be saved after you die. You're not conscious of it then, are you? And that's where baptism from, for, you know, for the dead begins. I transfer my faith to my dead grandmother and I am baptized to transfer salvation to her. I mean it works if that's how you think. Another false idea that grew out of this incorrect interpretation of the doctrine of the fall of man was a thing called predestination or arbitrary uh, election. The thinking goes like this. If you were damned and have no power to save yourself, Augustine and later some Protestant reformers taught that God therefore chooses in advance those who are to be saved and those who are to be lost. Because there's no other way to save them. They're corrupted totally. There's nothing they can do for themselves to save themselves. So God has to step in, choose some for salvation, some for damnation. Since you are helpless to choose or obey, the only way to be saved is if God arbitrarily chooses you for salvation. Now the question that arises from this doctrine is, if God chooses me, how do I know that I have been chosen? And when that question arises, then you have to kind of develop more religious practices. You see what I'm saying? Once you start building this thing you know, on the improper base, then you have to keep adding components to it to make it stand up. So evangelicals, all right, Baptists, community churches, Protestant groups, you know, they see God's choice of themselves for salvation by observing the progressive improvement of the moral character as a confirmation that one has been chosen. In other words, if you believe you know, and accept Jesus, you're not baptized right away. They kind of observe you to see if, you're, if you morally start to improve. And your moral improvement okay, and your maturity as a Christian, as a believer, this is the confirmation that you have actually been chosen by God. This is why there is a watch and see period before baptism. Ever wonder why in a lot of 
Baptist churches, they do baptisms all in one day or they schedule it three months off or things like that. This is why they teach that baptism is not essential for salvation. You've already been chosen. You're already saved. So the baptism part, that's just a ritual. It's only a symbolic ritual. It has no impact, no meaning, no nothing. It's just outward sign you know, of an inward thing that's already happened. The idea of once saved, always saved, also comes from the original teaching of original sin. If God chooses you, who's going to unchoose you? If God says you're saved, who are you to say you're not saved? Because if God chooses you for salvation, you're done, man, you're saved. Now, other groups, charismatic groups, Pentecostal groups, they had the same question. How do I know I've been chosen, right? Well, charismatic and Pentecostal churches see the ability to speak in tongues as the sign of election by God. It is the way that they know and are sure of God's choosing of them. You can go up to a, a Pentecostal person and you can show them all the Greek you want. You, you, can, you can give them a contextualized argument that no, no, the tongues, you know, that, the, the, the actual Greek word means an actual language and they were speaking an actual language and that, that, that. And you can give them all the is it right-brained or left-brained arguments, you know, logically, blah, 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 and walk away and say, they didn't buy it. I wonder why. Because for them, speaking in tongues is directly related to their salvation. So if you say, no, no, you're not really speaking in tongues, what you're actually saying to them is, no, you're not really saved. Because the outward confirmation of your salvation is not true. It's not a spiritual phenomenon. It's a man-made thing. Okay? And so to summarize, the teaching of the incorrect idea of original sin was a departure from the biblical doctrine of the fall of man. It said that by his fall, Adam spread the guilt for sin to all men. In other words, you're born guilty. It said that because of this guilt, man became unable to choose correctly. Also using the term depraved. So man was not able to choose or to respond to God in faith. Did not have the ability. You could preach the gospel to them all day long. They couldn't do it. It also taught that God arbitrarily chose some for salvation and others for condemnation and once the choice was made, nothing could change it. Eventually this led to modern religious groups looking for signs of improved moral living or special spiritual gifts as an, as an assurance that they were actually the chosen, the saved. This is why they say, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior. Why do they say that? Well, they accept because they cannot choose. You accept it. Now, listen, I'm, I'm fairly certain that someone who's gone through that experience and even could not give the background to it. You know what I'm saying? All they've got is the slogan. I accept Jesus as my personal savior. They couldn't break it down and drill down and, and figure out where does this come from? Okay. 
Roman Catholics respond to this doctrine by baptizing babies. Since babies cannot save themselves, the parents save them based on their transferred faith. And then, of course, somebody will challenge them and say, well, what about choice and this and that? So in addition to you know, infant baptism, they add another religious procedure that isn't biblical, and that is the sacrament of confirmation. So when you're 12 years old or so, you are confirmed and you wonder, well, what is that confirmation? Well, what you're doing is you've reached the age of reason, 12 years, 13 years, whatever, and you are confirming what took place when you were a baby. I remember my own confirmation. You know, the bishop came and it was a big deal and you know, we had a party after. I remember I got baseball equipment you know, and at the party. <laughs> And, and, and you'd go up and you, 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 you would, you know, the, 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 the bishop would have his homily and he would read, you know, and does everybody, I will never drink alcohol. Yes, amen, never drink alcohol. I will never have sex out of marriage. Yes, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and he'd go through all those things. You know, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I do. And then we'd all proceed up. And he would, it was, it's so confuddled. And then he would lay hands on us, you know, either put his hand on our head or on, on the forehead to demonstrate that we had been confirmed. Everything that was done, not against our will, but outside of our will with a baby at confirmation, we confirmed all of that stuff. You know, some people say, how did you get out of the Catholic Church? I read the Bible. <laughs> I just read the Bible, that's all. And I asked myself, wait a minute, I, I didn't see this in here. Where is this in here? Well, I was told, you just don't understand. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I understand. I was with, with Pentecostal groups, you know, speaking in tongues and doing all their stuff. I would read and I said, I just can't see Jesus rolling around on the ground like this. And I was told, well, you just don't understand. So I guess I just don't understand. So we're going to go more deeply into these when we discuss these ideas in biblical context. But for now, let's go back to our discussion of this set of major doctrines. Okay? The first two doctrines in this set of three teach us about man's original goodness when created and the consequences of his fall through sin and disobedience. The second doctrine, the fall through sin, has been used to establish a variety of other doctrines such as original sin, total depravity and election, as well as certain religious practices like infant baptism, confirmation, all that kind of stuff. However, in its original form, the doctrine of, of the fall of man simply explained that from the beginning man had the power to choose right from wrong and, listen, even after the fall continues to have this ability even if it is weakened by a sinful nature. So yes, sin has weakened our nature. And yes, it is appropriate to say we have a sinful nature, yes. But our sinful nature has not robbed us of the ability to choose. Has not weakened us so badly that we cannot believe. This is where we differ from Protestants, most Protestants, Evangelicals, Pentecostal. People say, well, you know, I went to the Baptist church and they did everything we did. They sang, they passed around a plate for money, you know, they had communion, that particular. So I don't see the difference. Well, no, on the surface you don't. 
But if you scratch the surface and go down a little bit, you see a big, big difference. So what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible clearly teaches this idea that we have the ability. Isaiah 59.2. Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So Isaiah is saying, it is the individual sins that condemn him, not the sins of others. My father was a sinner. And I could articulate to you what his particular sins were. But I'm not guilty of his sins. I'm guilty of my own sins. Ezekiel chapter 18 verses 20 to 21, it says, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Can it be any clearer here? One generation is not held responsible for the other generation's sins. And Ezekiel, speaking from God, says, and even the wicked person, if that person changes and begins to obey, means he has the ability, he or she has the ability to do so, he will be accepted. Acts 2.38. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in this passage we see that the gospel appeals to man's intellect and requires a choice based on faith, something only an adult can do. Baptism is a ritual. Yes, of course it's a ritual. I mean, there's water, you immerse somebody. I mean, it is. By definition, it's a ritual. But it's a ritual that expresses one's faith. So I, God says to me, believe in me, believe in Jesus, and I'll forgive your sins, and I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And I say to God, how do you want me, what do you want me to do? Not to pay for my sins, what do you want me to do to express my faith in you? Do you want me to walk on hot coals? Do you want me to make the sign of the cross? Do you want me to take a, a trip to Jerusalem and visit the, the holy wall and, and pray? What do you want me to do to show you that I actually believe? And Peter says, okay, here's what I want you to do not, again, not to pay for your sins. Here's what I want you to do to demonstrate that you believe. Repent of your sins, turn your life around, and be, be immersed in water. Why? Because it is the point in time where faith meets salvation in the waters of baptism. Why is it that way? Because God made it that way. Do we actually think that the quote Church of Christ invented baptism by immersion? You know, some people say, oh, that's a Church of Christ thing. You, know, you people, you know, well, you people. All we're doing is simply trying to follow the scriptures as accurately as we can. The scriptures say the person who believes expresses that faith, how? By repenting of their sins and by being baptized. So when anybody wants to become a Christian, what do we say to them? Repent of your sins and be baptized, period. 
Nothing more, nothing less. That's all. That's not legalistic. That's not narrow-mindedness. That's just, that's just Bible. Okay. And then in 1 Timothy, Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says, God, excuse me, it says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God of our, sa our, God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Wait a minute, who did he say that God wants to be saved? Everybody. God wants all men to be saved. Not, I choose some for salvation, I choose some, you know, all men, all men, all women. You know, the, the term man there refers to mankind. Right? So God requires, He doesn't just hope for it, He requires it. He requires that all people be saved, not just a few, not just those chosen by Him. So man still has the capacity to accept or to reject Jesus Christ. Man's spiritual destiny is in his hands where God originally placed it at the creation. So how are we different from others? Well, this is how we're different from others. We believe that all individuals have the capacity to be saved. We believe that all individuals can understand the, the, intellectually the gospel. And if they can't understand the gospel intellectually because they're too young, or for whatever reason they have some you know, emotional, intellectual handicaps that they can't grasp these ideas, then they're not subject to condemnation. They're like babies, they're like children. Okay? Christ died for all people and all of those who believe in Him, repent of their sins and are baptized, they will be saved, all of them. So as I say, man's spiritual destiny is in his own hand. So if we could read the Bible in one sitting, we would note how naturally and seamlessly these three great doctrines just follow each other. The first two describe and explain man's original goodness, followed by his sin and his fall, and the consequences of these. The third major doctrine in the set explains the wonderful story of how God restores man to himself. Let me read Second Corinthians here. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So reconciliation, it means to bring into harmony, to realign us. Okay? And excuse me, I forgot to read the last verse. It says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the history and the method that God used in reconciling man with Himself after the fall is what the balance of the Bible is all about. And it is the subject of the fifth major doctrine, and that is reconciliation. So remember we said the first one, inspiration of the Bible. Second one, divinity of Christ. Third one, uh, original goodness. Fourth one, the fall of man. Fifth one, reconciliation of man to God through Jesus Christ. Now here's, here's the structure. This doctrine of reconciliation between God and man is explained in the Bible in ten sub-doctrines. Okay? 
and here they are. So the major doctrines, inspiration, divinity of Christ, original goodness, fall of man, number five, the restoration. The restoration of man back to God. That restoration of man back to God is explained theologically through 10 sub-doctrines under the doctrine of restoration. Election, predestined, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought that was a false doctrine. No, 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 no. Election is a biblical doctrine. It's simply been explained incorrectly. And predestination is also a biblical doctrine, but it has been explained incorrectly. So election, predestination, atonement, redemption, regeneration, adoption, adoption justification, perfection, sanctification, and salvation. Those are 10 sub-doctrines that explain the major doctrine of reconciliation. So the next several lessons of our course will be a study of these sub-doctrines which explain God's plan and purpose in reconciling fallen mankind to Himself. We're going to look at what these mean, why God did it in this way, and how these doctrines impact our Christian lives. And I have to tell you, if you know this, you are as solid as a rock as far as your faith is concerned, if you know this. Because you're, you're not only going to understand the how, because that's pretty much what you hear in preaching, and so, the how, but these doctrines explain the why. Okay? The why. Why does God do it the way He does it? All right, that's it. I told you, big mouthful today, big chunk. Thank you very much for your attention.